Well, you know, I, uh, I love a great story. Like many of you, I, I love to be surprised by the, the end of a story as well. A, a great twist at the end of a story just puts the icing on the cake, doesn't it? So, uh, as, you, as you can imagine, one of my favorite kind of stories is the mystery. How many enjoy a good mystery novel or a good movie that just has, you know, who done it? Uh, I, I love trying to figure out, um, you know, figuring out the, the, the puzzle, the mystery, before all the main characters figure it out. What hints did the author drop along the way? Is there something that I caught that they missed? Who did it? Was it in the library with a candlestick? When you hear the word mystery, though, uh, perhaps you, you think like I do of the whodunit stories, Agatha Christie, uh, Sherlock Holmes. Or perhaps when you hear the word mystery, it insinuates in your mind something that's unusual, something that's not understandable, something that's difficult to comprehend. Perhaps it's a secret that nobody can understand. When you hear the word mystery, uh, maybe that's where your mind goes. And so with that in mind, this is why Americans get a little bit confused when they read passages like Ephesians chapter 3 that Angie just read for us that revolve around this idea of the mystery of Christ. You know, what's Paul talking about? Some murder mystery? You know, are we talking about the crucifixion? You know, we're trying to figure out who did it? Or is there something here that we can't understand? You know, our, our, we hear the word mystery and so we go, well, what's going on with this? What does God mean by it? You first need to understand that when you see the word mystery in the Bible, uh, the, the Bible is using this word a bit differently than we use it in the 21st century normally. In the Bible, the word simply means this. The word mystery simply refers to something that was previously hidden but has now been revealed. Something that was previously hidden, no one knew about it. They didn't even know to talk about it because they hadn't heard of it before. It had been hidden in God's mind, in God's plan. But now, God has revealed further parts of His plan. He's revealed His plan so that we can understand what was once a mystery. Throughout the entire Old Testament, God was doing a special work among, we've seen primarily among the nation of Israel, right? And uh, he, he called them to be a, a light to the nations. And God, God still has a plan for the Jews as we come to the New Testament. He still has a plan for the nation of Israel to redeem them and to accomplish His promises to them as a nation. A lot of those promises that we've been unpacking over this last few months. But after Jesus rose from the dead and then ascended into heaven, He started something that was a bit different, didn't He? It, it was something that we didn't see in the Old Testament that was talked about. It was, it was a mystery. It was something that had been hidden for ages and for generations until the right time. And then God revealed His plan. And so now He has revealed this thing called the church. He's revealed His Son, Jesus Christ, who came and dwelt among us. And so within this story, God chose to do something glorious among the Gentiles. That's us. Most of us. He chose to do something glorious outside the nation of just Israel. 
And so today, you and I have the opportunity, as we talk about the story and where we're at, you know, we've started in Genesis, and we've worked through Adam and Eve and Abraham, and, and all the way through the Old Testament, we saw the kings and the prophets, and, and, and thousands of years of human history, and then we come to this church, which is where we're at in the series right now, and that's us. That's, we're, we're at this point in history. The story is, is now here in our age, as we participate in this thing called the church. You and I have this opportunity to be a part of something spectacular, something that was the first several thousand years of human history never heard of. Through the church, God is putting His glory on display, and it's our privilege to make His message known. Well, we're, we're quickly approaching the end of, of our series, and one of our goals is still, however, to help us all build this framework. We, we talked about this house that we're building. We have... Uh, we're putting up this frame, and our, our goal is not to put up the siding. Our goal is not to put, even put a roof and the windows in. There's no doors. We're not going to paint the walls because there aren't any walls to paint. We're, just, we're building a framework so that we know where to hang everything else later on. And we're, we've gone through the entire Bible, and our objective is not to, to fill in every little piece and go over every single little passage, but to build this framework so that as you're reading the Bible and as you're studying the Bible, you, you start to see a big picture of where things are supposed to go and how they fit in to the whole thing. And so that's still one of our objectives, even as we're moving through the New Testament now. And um, we want to see how these individual stories of people's lives on the, the lower story fit into the larger picture of, of God's upper story. Today we're going to do three things together. Uh, first, we're going to consider the, this mystery, which is the church, and we're going to take a little bit of a look at Ephesians chapter 3 together. Uh, this church, something that was previously hidden in the Old Testament, but has now been revealed in God's story. Second, we're going to take a look at one of the main characters in the early days of the church, a man named Paul. And then third, we will take a look at one of Paul's letters as a sample of how God was revealing truth to this new body that was called the church. And the church basically just means assembly. And so when you hear the word church, it's talking about the assembly of believers. So first consider with me what this church is in the scope of, of God's story. Now that we're all on the same page about what a mystery means in the Bible, let me read part of that passage that Angie read for us one more time. Look at verse 4. If you turn to Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 4 and go to verse 6. Paul writes to the, Ephesians, the church in Ephesians, Ephesus, he says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and the prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the Gospel. I want you to consider, consider here what Paul is, is saying to this church. Back in chapter 2, Paul has just finished talking about how the Gentiles, us, a Gentile somebody who's not a Jew, how the Gentiles were once far off. We were not a part of Israel unless we actually went through the process of becoming an Israelite, joining their nation. There was, um, there was a very real separation that the Gentiles understood and felt. And it's not that the Gentiles could not be saved, but, but God, God's plan 
particularly was being revealed through the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel was to be a light to the Gentiles so that many of the Gentiles could be saved. But there was a separation that was there. We've watched that unfold over this last few months and saw how God was using the nation of Israel. But, but then when we turn to the pages of the New Testament, to, to the time that the prophets of old had looked forward to because they were trying to understand how these things were going to take place that they were predicting and, and foretelling. But what happens is Jesus steps into our world. He took on flesh. And, and now in Christ Jesus... Paul says, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Us Gentiles, we're we're no longer strangers. You know what that word stranger means? Right? Kind of connotes a few things, doesn't it? Connotates a few things. Is that right? Connotes, connotates. All right, That, that word just sounds really strange when you say it now, doesn't it? It connotates a few things for us. That we were strangers but we who are far off have been brought near. Us Gentiles have now been become fellow citizens and part of God's household. And, and therefore, in verses 4 to 5, he explains how the church was a mystery that had never been heard of, but through the ministry of the apostles and the prophets who laid the foundation of the church on the cornerstone that was Jesus, has, it's now been revealed that the Gentiles have become fellow heirs with the Israelites. That's, a, that's an enormous revelation. We are heirs, fellow heirs with Israel. We've been given front row seats to partake in the promises of Christ Jesus. However, participation in this new and, and glorious body isn't automatic. To be part of Israel, what did you have to do? What was required to be a member in Israel? Kind of had to be born, right? Yeah, now, there was spiritual Israel. There were people who were true believers and people within Israel who didn't believe. But to be an Israelite, to be a Jew, you kind of just had to be born to the right family. And so you were either a Jew or you weren't. You were a Gentile or you weren't. And and so within Israel, it was automatic. You were either part of Israel or you were not. didn't mean you were automatically saved, but... Uh, being in the church doesn't just come automatically. You're, you're not born into it. You don't inherit the church. It doesn't come through following the law. Being a, a part of the church, being a member of the church, doesn't come through attendance on Sunday mornings. It's not inherited from one generation to the next. We, we've, we have become partakers of the promise. Look at verse 6. Through the gospel. One receives eternal life through what's called the good news. And the good news is this. Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. He was buried and he rose again on the third day. From the very beginning when Adam and Eve rebelled against God and essentially declared war on our Creator, all of mankind has had one enormous problem that needs to be fixed our sin. It separates us from our Maker. And it's not just the human race which is separated from our Maker. It's every single one of us, every individual is at war with God. And our sin is a, is, is a, a, a defiance in His face. But God has been in the process of restoring that relationship. And He offers it to you. 
and to me, to each one of us. And we have to respond to that. You have the opportunity then to repent of your sin and believe in Jesus Christ who paid the debt that you could never repay. Even if you spent the ent- your entire eternity attempting to pursue that one goal, you can never do it. It's impossible. The good news is that through believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. And when one receives this free gift of God's grace, His Spirit places you into the body of Christ. When you believe in Jesus and what He did on the cross, that that is the solution to your sin problem, that that is what saves you from your personal war with God. When you fall at the feet of Jesus Christ and repent of your sins and turn to Him and Him alone, He puts you into this body and you become a partaker in this thing that once was a mystery but now you get to be personally involved in it, a part of it. And if you jump down to verse 10, notice that there's something that takes place through this church, through this thing that was a mystery, through Gentiles like you and I gaining access to the riches of Christ and eternal life. Paul writes this, it's so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. There's a few things in that verse which might seem unclear at at, at first. Uh, He uses this word manifold, this manifold wisdom of God. Uh, In in classical uh, Greek, uh, that word manifold, it referred to the the beauty of an embroidered garment, a pattern. Or, Or sometimes it was used of all the colors and the varieties of the flowers. The manifold beauty of spring. Drive down the street, notice the beauty of the tulips and the daffodils shouting out, spring is here, as they get snowed on late April. Perhaps you noticed on your way in this morning the hyacinths or the flowering bushes you walked in today that I can't remember the name of. What is it? Adelia? Azalea? Is it Azalea? All right. Somebody can look it up and take a picture and use your app. All right. Beautiful. The manifold beauty of, of these things that God has created, the flowers. Through the mystery, which is called the church, God is doing something similar. Through the church, the beauty of God's wisdom is on full display. And particularly, who's it on display for, according to this verse? The angels. These heavenly beings. These, he calls them these... Um, Uh, the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. There there is a spiritual world that we can't see with our eyes, but that exists and that we're also a part of. And through the church, this beauty of God's wisdom is on full display for all the angels of heaven and all the fallen angels below. And they can do nothing but acknowledge God's manifold wisdom as they see Him revealing this mystery that has been made known. It was hidden in ages past, but now Jews and Gentiles are participating in this body and boldly going out into the world, proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ crucified and raised from the dead. And God is glorified through that. Well, after the resurrection, Jesus met with his disciples for 40 days before he ascended into heaven. 
and while they, um, they, they ascended while, while they were watching. He ascended while they were watching. But the last thing that Jesus did was he gave to his followers, these people who would become very soon the church and, and, and who would grow into a, a body that's much bigger than just these originally, this, this small group of a few hundred people. The last thing that Jesus did is he gave these followers what we call the Great Commission. It is a command that wraps up the church's mission in one statement. The closing words of the Gospel of Matthew, something that we're probably all very familiar with, but, but Matthew leaves us with this, and Jesus left us with this. These were his very last words before he ascended into heaven that are recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in, na- in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And my friends, that is our mission. That's your job. You have to understand, you are not a, a, a contractor who happens to be a believer in Jesus Christ. You, you are not a farmer who happens to be a follower of Jesus Christ. You are not a mother or a housewife or a student who follows Jesus Christ and just happens to be that. You are a follower of Jesus Christ and you have a job. You have a mission. All those other things are secondary. Those are the opportunities and the places that God has put you. Real opportunities where, yes, you provide for your family and you're involved in your society, but, but those are, are secondary to your primary objective of bringing glory to God. And as part of the church, you do that by fulfilling this mission. Your job is to go out and tell people about Jesus Christ, to make disciples of all nations, starting with your hometown and going out into all the world, wherever God takes you. The church is glorifying God as we make disciples all around the world. In the book of Acts, we discover how the early church began to obey Jesus' command. And I printed out for you a summary of the book of Acts. If you look in your, your bulletin today, you'll find your sermon notes. Uh, but you'll also find this sheet here, which says Acts and the Epistles. It's a little bit of a chart, just kind of a, a reference for you as you're, as you're reading through the New Testament this, this month. Give you a little bit of a chronology of kind of how things fit together. You, you read the New Testament, and you kind of get this idea of, okay, maybe you know, the, the Gospels happened first. Obviously, Jesus came, and, and the events of the Gospels are early on. But the Gospels were actually written much later. And then you get to these epistles, and you get Romans, and First and Second Corinthians, and, and they're, they're in a, a particular order, but, but they're not chronological. They're kind of scattered all over the place, and, and some of them were written by Paul, some were written by Peter, and John, and all these other people, and how does that all fit together? And so hopefully that will help make sense of that. Um, but um, I printed that out because you can see on the front page how the church first started making disciples in Jerusalem. In that first couple columns on the left, uh, you'll see that this unfolds in in the first six chapters of Acts. The gospel went forth, but primarily within the city of Jerusalem. That's where the the believers were gathered and where they were doing church and and where they were proclaiming the gospel. Over the next six chapters, up to chapter 12, Christianity begins to spread not only throughout Judea, but also into Samaria, that place to the north where you know, they were part Jew, part Gentile, and, 
and the Jews really hated those people. But, but God starts doing something, and now those people are hearing the gospel, and they're responding to the gospel, and God has even given His Holy Spirit to the Samaritans. And, and the people in Jerusalem rejoiced. It took them a little bit, but then they rejoiced and said, wow, God's even saving the Samaritans. However, throughout the remainder of the book of Acts, God takes it one step further, and and now He's saving the Gentiles. And He gives His Spirit to the Gentiles, people like you and I, who have the Holy Spirit today. And Luke shows how the Gospel went out into the world, far beyond the borders of Israel. God used one of the least likely individuals to be His apostle to the Gentiles. Acts 6 introduces us to a man named Saul. Later on, we'll know him by his Greek name that Jesus calls him by. Uh, Maybe Jesus gave him that name and he hadn't been called that before, but he then becomes known as Paul. This man was a a Pharisee of Pharisees. He, He devoted his life to zealously fulfilling the commands of the law. And and when the church began to grow, and in his eyes, when the church began to steal God's glory. It made, he made it his mission to snuff the church out. Randy Frazee calls Paul the, the Osama bin Laden of his day. He was intense. His persecution was systematic. In fact, through his work, the church began to experience its first really systematic persecution. But then God flipped Saul's life upside down, didn't he? Jesus meets Saul on the road to Damascus. He's on his way to Syria uh, where he's going to arrest the Christians in this northern city of Damascus. And Jesus meets him there, blinds him, calls him. He trusts Jesus, his Messiah, and by God's grace through Paul's faith in Jesus, the Lord saves Paul from his sin. And then eventually God does something remarkable the complete plot twist in the book of Acts. The one who is persecuting the, the Christians now becomes the one that is God's spokesman to the Gentiles. Paul describes his mission to Ephesians uh, in our Ephesians chapter 3 passage. Look at verse 7 if you want to jump back over there. Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 7, Paul says this about himself. He says, Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So therefore, this this church's commission, our mission, our job, the way that the church glorifies our Lord primarily This great commission was given by Jesus in Matthew 28, and that great commission became Paul's mission in life, just as it's supposed to be our mission in life as well. The book of Acts shows Paul's missionary work work taking place through three journeys in which he, he takes the good news to the Gentile world. On the first missionary journey, he essentially goes up into Turkey and he kind of, he hugs that that, uh, Mediterranean coast on the southern side of what's now modern day Turkey. And the gospel spread there. Um, Acts chapter 15 records the first council of the church. 
in which all the leaders met in Jerusalem. But then after that, Paul and Silas go out on the second missionary journey, and they revisit some of those churches in Galatia and, and throughout Asia Minor that Paul had gone to before. But then they, God calls them to another place, and for the first time, the gospel crosses into Europe. It, it, it goes up into Macedonia and down into Greece. His third missionary journey took him on similar travels and concluded back in Jerusalem where, where Paul is arrested. The Jews try to assassinate him. And over the next few years, Paul is going to live under house arrest. He's going to live uh, in a jail cell or, or sometimes in a, probably his own apartment. But um, the, the Lord uses this, this time in which Paul is in chains, uh, not, not in a dungeon at this point, but but under house arrest, he's going to use this time in which he's in his chains to take him on his fourth journey where he's going to end up standing in trial in Rome. But throughout that entire process, the gospel is heard by kings, by governors, eventually even by Caesar himself. Now, over the course of all these journeys, God used Paul to plant at least ten churches from where the good news then spread to those entire regions and it went all over the place. And also over the course of these years, and particularly his time in, in, um, under arrest, he's also going to write 13 out of the 27 books of the New Testament. You'll notice on the handout the major sections of the book of Acts that I talked about, the events that took place and the approximate dates that they happened. But also take notice of the last column on the right side that lists the books of the New Testament. We spent 21 weeks of this series unpacking the Old Testament. The 39 books of the Old Testament were written in a time frame of over a thousand years. Most of the New Testament books, however, were all written in the time frame of about 20 years. A little bit different, right? A lot happening, a lot of revelation taking place. The time frame of about 20 years, except for the writings of the Apostle John, which are going to come just a little bit later. But when you turn to the New Testament, our Bible starts with four Gospels. Uh, but the first book of the New Testament that was probably written chronologically was the epistle of James. Soon after that were the events of the Jerusalem Council, at which time Paul probably wrote Galatians. Paul did write Galatians, but probably about that time. And then sometime around the time of Paul's second missionary journey is about when the first gospel is written. And, and Mark, probably closely associated with Peter at that time, writes the first gospel, and Paul writes two letters to the church of Thessalonica. But you can see that the bulk of the New Testament was written over that next 10 years. And as I mentioned before, the book of Acts closes with Paul living under house arrest where he would have had some freedom to live in a home, but he would have been chained to a Roman guard about 24 hours a day. It was during this time that he wrote four of his most famous epistles, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians. But probably the most famous of Paul's 13 letters, and probably the epistle which has been written about more than any of the others, is Paul's epistle to the Romans. It, um, in the time that we have remaining, I'd like us to attempt a feat which likely you'll think is impossible for your pastor. But in the next few minutes, I would like to walk you through the entire book of Romans. Think we can do that? Yeah, some of you are shaking your head, no way. There's no way Pastor Jeff can do this. We've already been in Ephesians. We've already gone on that through half of Acts. There's no way we're going to get through Romans today. Well, Romans is a letter which every one of us should know. And as we're talking about Paul and we're talking about this mystery of the church, I, I think it's important that we understand this masterpiece that's written. 
And certainly we won't understand it in full in this time that we have left. But, but I think a, a glance at what this book is and what it entails that shows this, this masterpiece that's written about the justification through faith alone. You see, though it is filled with doctrine and, and, and some of the most well-articulated theology that has ever been written, Romans is a book that answers some of the most practical questions of the Christian life. Some of the most practical questions that have been, been asked by the human race for all of our time on this planet throughout our entire existence. And I think we need to understand it. The entire letter of Romans is a treatise on Habakkuk 1.4. Paul is taking one verse, a half of a verse actually, from the Old Testament, the same, same verse that, that Hebrews is dealing with, but where Hebrews is going to really be dealing with how our righteousness manifests in the Christian life, uh, Romans is going to be dealing with it from the perspective of justification. And Habakkuk 1.4, where the prophet has written, the righteous shall live by faith. What does that mean? What does it mean that the righteous shall live by faith? And Paul says, let me tell you about that. And he's going to write this entire letter dealing with that one phrase. Romans answers that two-part question of, of how, how can we be righteous? The, the world has been asking for ages, how can we as human beings be righteous and how can we live righteously? Romans answers those questions and, and Paul starts the body of his letter with his thesis statement in verses one, uh, chapter 1, verses 16 to 18 where he says this. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The first section of this epistle, this letter, is Romans chapters 1-3. through three. And in those three chapters, Paul demonstrates the problem that we've been talking about through the entire series of, that we call the story. This problem that we've been talking about ever since we open up the pages of Genesis. We, we have a sin problem. And because of that sin, God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We're at war with God and God's wrath is destined to us because we deserve it. We've hated him. We have shaken our fist at him. We've said, we reject your story. We reject your plan. We want to have nothing to do with the kind of righteousness that you want to offer us. The kind of life that you want to give to us. And so we rebelled against him. Throughout chapter 1, Paul talks about the unrighteousness of the world which lives out its lusts and dishonorable passions. He talks about the godless who are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. Sins that, you know, these, these, these are people who, who, who can see God's power. They can see God's divine nature through His creation. They can look around the world and go, wow, God did that, but instead they suppress the truth. And Genesis, excuse me, Romans chapter 1 says that they are under God's wrath. They've rejected the truth that God offered to them. And so they live these ungodly lives of horrible sin. And the moral person in our culture, that would be people who try to, you know, they try to live a good life. They're trying to be a good people. 
The, the moral person says, whew, glad I'm not like that. Glad I'm not like that guy over there. To which Paul responds with chapter 2. And he starts and says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. You see, the, the world is filled with people who do horrible, horrible things. Murder, envy, strife, maliciousness. You read through the list in Romans chapter 1, and you go, wow, these people are pretty bad. But there's a lot of people in this world who go, oh, I'm not that bad. I mean, compared to him and her, I live a pretty good life. I, I think when I stand before God, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty good person comparably. And Paul says in chapter 2, you've condemned yourself. You see, we, we've, we live in this world that's filled with people who try to live good and they try to do the right thing. And it's not that they do things as bad as a lot of other people. They, they follow their conscience to a great extent, which God has given to them. They try not to be as bad as those people, the ones who deserve to die. And these moral people end up showing that there's a standard. And they also fall short and they cannot be good enough for they, they do not obey the truth. The, the very standards which they say, I'm glad I'm not as bad as that person, they end up breaking those same laws that God has written on their hearts. They don't obey the truth, and so they also are destined for God's wrath and for His fury. It's at this point that Paul anticipates a third group of people and their response. The Jews say, Whew, glad I'm, I'm glad I'm not like those people. Thank goodness that we have the law. If you look at, at today's terms, th this is the church people. You know, people go to church every Sunday and they say, glad I've got church and the Bible and, and everything else I grew up with. I'm glad I'm a Christian because my parents were Christians. And they don't understand the gospel, but you know, they, they try to go to church and be a good person and they have God's revelation. And whether it's the Jew that Paul's referring to specifically or the people in today's world that think that they're religious, uh, they, they say, thank goodness we have the law. Thank goodness I have a list of rules that I follow that make me a better person than that man over there. Right? Isn't that what people say? Isn't that where our minds go naturally? But then Romans shows that the very law, that very law condemns the person who is under the law because just like the person who lives by his conscience, just like the person who lives by his conscience breaks God's law, which was written on his hearts, so the person who actually has God's Word, the person that actually has God's revelation, what do they do with it? Do they perfectly fulfill it? Do they perfectly obey it? They don't. None of us do. They violate it. And so, the Jew also, and the churchgoer, the good people of society, they also are condemned to God's wrath. So Paul asks the next question before you can ask it. He does that a lot in Romans. He'll, he'll, he'll explain something, and then he anticipates the question that you're going to ask. And so he asks it, and then he addresses it. He says, then what advantage has the Jew? I mean, we've been talking about the story. For the, I mean, we've been spending a lot of time here. If, if that does nothing for the Jewish people, why have we been spending all those weeks looking at the story? I mean, this kind of funeral is what it looks like. And Paul asks the question, why, why, what's the purpose in all this? What advantage do they have? You see, we have, we have this enormous problem 
because whether we live ungodly, corrupt lives, whether we try to live by the conscience that God gave us, or whether we try to follow the, the letter of the law and be perfect, none of us can escape God's wrath. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that brings us to the second major section of Romans, where Paul shows that God's righteousness is revealed in justification. You see, there is nothing that we are able to do that can earn our own righteousness. There is nothing that you and I can do to escape God's wrath by our own works, by our own deeds, by anything that we can accomplish and prove ourselves to God. You cannot be good enough. You cannot follow enough rules. You cannot do anything to earn God's favor. You're condemned in your sin. Not even the Old Testament law can justify you because you can't obey it perfectly enough. And that's bad news, isn't it? Is that bad news? You're condemned? God's wrath is pointed towards you? Please tell me that's bad news. If it's not, you know, we're, we're missing it. That's horrible news. But Romans has good news for us, doesn't it? So, how can anyone be saved? If we are all destined for wrath, what's the purpose of all this? Why do we even come to church? Why do we even talk about these things? Why do we even, if we can't perfectly fulfill and obey God's law, why do we spend time reading it and preaching it and wasting our lives on something that we can never do anyway? And that's where chapter 4 comes in. Paul shows that before the law was ever written, there was a guy named Abraham. Remember him? It's a long time ago in our series. How was Abraham saved? He perfectly fulfilled the law, didn't he? He, he took the law of Moses and he said, I'm going to follow the Ten Commandments. I'm going to do all Levitical stuff. I, I'm not going to eat the wrong foods, right? That hadn't been written yet. Abraham was, you know, a, he was herding sheep out there and he's a pretty wealthy guy for his day, but um, the law hadn't been written yet. And God saved him. Well, it wasn't through fulfilling the law. Oh, it's because he got circumcised, right? God says, this is how I'm going to identify your people. You do this and I'll save you. Is that how he got saved? And Paul tells us in Romans 4, he says, God saved and justified Abraham before that even took place. So how did Abraham get saved? If he couldn't fulfill the law, he couldn't be a good enough person. It wasn't by following all these rules. Genesis tells us, and Paul quotes Genesis here, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Do you see how that fits in with Habakkuk and what Paul's talking about? Abraham was saved. Abraham was justified by God before the law even existed, before circumcision had been commanded. He was justified through faith. He believed. God told him he was going to do the impossible. And Abraham said, okay. I believe you. And when Abraham believed God, the Bible tells us that God credited it to his account. He, he removed all of Abraham's sin from his sin account, his bank account. And what he put there instead was his own righteousness. He made Abraham righteous. And so is it the same for us? 
we can't receive God's righteousness by anything we do, so how can we be saved? And Paul says at the end of chapter 4, it will be counted to us who believe in Him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So Paul's point in chapter 4 is God does the same thing for you that He did for Abraham thousands of years ago. It's not through following the law of Moses. It's not through circumcision. It's not through following a certain set of rules. Salvation comes to you in the same way. We believe in what God did through Jesus, and God also credits our account. Paul elaborates on what this means in chapter 5. You see, we we now have peace with God. We, We have hope through Jesus. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Remember all those people he talked about in the first three chapters? Christ died for those people. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that leads us to the next major question. If God saved us, okay, He's justified us, and so God's grace is increased. I mean, wow, what a beautiful thing. And so if God's grace has increased because He saved us from our sin, should, should I then go ahead and keep on sinning? I mean, if I keep on sinning and keep on just making a miserable mess of my life, that means that God's going to keep on pouring His grace on me so God's grace just keeps on getting bigger and bigger. So wouldn't that just, you know, yeah, let's just keep on making a mess of a life, right? Paul says no, by no means no, no. He anticipates that question. He says no. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And so chapters 6 through 8 shows how God's righteousness is revealed not only in our justification, but also in our sanctification. Justification is when God declared you righteous, Sanctification is now that you are saved and in Christ you are in the process of becoming more like Jesus. We're talking about the Christian walk. Sanctification is the process of being made righteous daily. Chapters 6-8 through eight show us how God, um, how God is continuing to transform us through this process of the Christian walk. I'm going to quickly sum up these three chapters. In chapter 6, Paul shows us that we have a new relationship with sin. Sin is no longer your master. Sin is over here and it says, hey, Kurt, do this. Remember how you used to live? Do that now. And, and, and you say, okay, if you say so. Right? We all did, right? Sin, sin called out and said, this is how you live. And you, know, you didn't know better. I mean, it seemed best the way to do it, so we did it. God has changed that relationship. You are no longer, it is no longer your master, but now you are in the kingdom of God. Jesus is your master. And so you have a new relationship with sin. Chapter 7 shows us that we have a new relationship with the law. It used to, you know, because we had this relationship with sin, the law used to condemn us. We'd see the law and go, oh, yeah, I'm horrible. But, but now... We look at the law and realize that the law is what pointed us to our need for God's grace. And in chapter 8, Paul shows us we have a new relationship with the Spirit. 
In Christ, we have a new relationship with sin. We have a new relationship with the law. We have a new relationship with the Spirit of God. And if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We, we shall, who, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And, and that all leads to, to another important question. And, and Paul's going to take this, this line of argument. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short of God's, God's standard. But God justifies us through His, 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 um, His grace through Jesus Christ and through faith in Him. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And now we're in this process of sanctification, but Paul's going to pause for a little bit. He says, okay, all right, hold that thought because there's a question that some of you are asking that are reading Romans, and it's this. What does this mean for Israel? Everything we've been talking about in the story All these promises that God made to Abraham, to David, in fact, to the entire nation of Israel. We've been discovering all these things. So, are those promises canceled out because God's changed the plan? If He's brought the Gentiles into this this body, this mystery that has now been revealed, and the Gentiles get to be part of the church, does that mean that, that the Israel, the Jews, that God no longer has a plan for them? Does the church replace Israel? Is God righteous if He changes His promises? And these are big questions. And especially if you're a Jew, you're asking these, these questions about the Gospel and how it impacts all these things in the Old Testament. And, and so think of chapters 9-11 through 11 as somewhat of a parenthesis. He's pausing his main argument through Romans. And over these chapters, Paul deals with God's plan for Israel. God made a sovereign choice with Israel. And and though Israel rejected God's plan, God is doing something amazing through the church, but He still has a place for His chosen people within His sovereignty. And and He shows how, in chapters 9-11, through how God is not done with Israel yet. He still has a plan, and and we get to be a part of it, but they're still His chosen people. Well, now that he's dealt with the issue of the church and Israel and God's sovereignty and God's promises, Paul returns back to his main thesis. And in the last chapters, chapters 12 through 16, he shows us that we are not only made righteous through justification and our new relationships, but God's righteousness is also revealed through our transformed lives. Listen to how he begins this section in chapter 12. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, okay, remember the therefore, okay, that, that therefore in chapter 12 is therefore because of everything we've talked about in these 11 chapters, this is what happens now. This is all the doctrine of Romans, chapters 1 through 11, and so now let's start applying it. How does this impact your life today? And that's what chapters 12 through 16 is all about. Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I appeal to you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Do you want to do God's will in your life? Do you want to do what is acceptable to God? 
what is perfect in God's sight? God says, I have a plan for you. And here's how I want you to live. Um, he calls us a, a living sacrifice. Remember all the Old Testament sacrifices? Because it's one thing to have a sacrifice and it, it goes on the altar when it's dead, right? Romans chapter 12 is a little tougher than that. You, you're the sacrifice and you're a living one. And sometimes we go kicking and screaming, don't we? So I appeal to you, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And so in chapter 12, he shows us how our living is transformed in our ministry. Our, 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 our living is transformed in our relationships with other people. Chapter 13 shows how our living is transformed in relationships to our governing authorities. You don't like your president? You don't like your governor? You don't like the police who pulled you over? Here's how you live with all that. Here's how the gospel impacts that. Also shows us how our living uh, is in transformed in relationship with the future. And then chapters 14 through 16 show how our living is transformed in our relationships with other Christians. Now, I summed up a lot in Romans in just one sentence or two here and there. But I want you to understand that Romans is this masterpiece about God's righteousness and justification through faith alone. I want us to spend some time, wanted us to spend some time there today because I think oftentimes we get scared by these New Testament epistles. I mean, you open up Colossians and you go, these are some big words. What's going on here? And we see doctrine and teaching and theology and, and we let it we let it intimidate us sometimes but what we need to see is how practical these books are for the christian life as the church we've been called to a life on mission the church's mission which was the mission embraced by paul is our mission we are called to a life of making disciples and that starts with each person trusting what god did through jesus death and resurrection being justified by his grace leads to a new relationship with our God, and that leads to transformed living. There's a story of a missionary who served in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, there was an elderly woman who was reached with the gospel, and though she was blind, she couldn't read, she couldn't write, she wanted to share how her new faith, excuse me, she wanted to share her new faith, found faith with others. And so she went to the missionary and she asked for a copy of the Bible in French. I don't know if this is the country you come from, but it's in that region of sub-Saharan Africa. And uh, she got a Bible in French. And uh, when she got it, she asked the missionary to underline John 3.16. And he put it in red and he marked the page so that she could find it. But the missionary wanted to see what, she, what is she going to do. So one day he followed her. And she took that Bible in the afternoon just before school was let out. She made her way to the front door of the schoolhouse. And as all the little boys came out when the school was dismissed, she would stop one and ask him if he knew how to read French. And when he said, oui, she would ask him to read the verse that was marked in red. And then she would ask, do you know what that means? And she would tell him about Christ. You see, the missionary said that 24 of the schoolboys that that lady led to the Lord became pastors. 
Western Africa. Here was a woman who understood our mission. She understood the message of Romans, that it leads to transformed lives. She was blind. She couldn't read. She couldn't write. But she understood that the gospel that that Jesus died and rose from the dead transforms lives. She understood Jesus' command to go and make disciples of all nations, and so she did that from the front door of the schoolhouse in her village. My friend, do you understand the mystery of the church? This thing that has been revealed that you are a part of? Are you a part of it? If you're here today and you're thinking, I'm still at war with God. My friend, you need Jesus Christ. You need to turn from your sin and turn to him and, and receive the grace that he offers you as a free gift. He offers it to you today and right where you're sitting right now, you don't have to come up to an altar. You, you don't have to stand up and, and do jumping jacks. You don't have to raise your hand or fill out a card. Right now where you're sitting, if you say, I, I believe him, I believe what God said. I believe that God sent Jesus and Jesus died for my sin and, and that's the payment that needed to be made. I believe him my friend that is faith and right where you're sitting if you make that decision to turn from your sin and to to turn to jesus christ romans teaches us that god has given you justification he has saved you that is a decision that can be made right now where you're sitting in your seat a choice to believe do you understand the mystery of christ my friend this church that you are a part of if you have made that decision to believe in Jesus. The great gospel that was hidden in ages past but has now been revealed by the Spirit of God. Have you, have you received Christ and God's grace that He offers you through Him? My friend, do you understand your mission? This is our story. This is our place in the story. And all of our lives on the lower story go their own ways, but we are part of God's greater plan. And within the church, we have a job to do. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what you have to teach us here. We've covered a lot today, Lord. uh, But we thank you for how you teach it. We thank you for this man named Paul that you chose to, to turn his life upside down. This man who was a former persecutor, a murderer, a blasphemer, a a violent man as he describes himself. But but you took Paul and, and you transformed his life by your grace. You justified him and gave him your righteousness. And in his example, he 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 went out and he he followed your command. He went and made disciples. He went all over the world. And collectively, Lord, we know that that's our job too. And that we are a part of fulfilling this great commission. And so, Lord, please help each one of us. Help us to see our small part in this, whether it's at the, the doorway of a schoolhouse, whether it's at the kitchen table in our own homes, whether it's at Awana or with our neighbor at a barbecue or our coworker at work. Give us a vision, an understanding of how we also are to go out into the world and make disciples of all nations. And might Jesus Christ be glorified through us. 
might eastern Iowa be a changed region as a result of the gospel going forth from this church? And might your spirit fill us this week. Amen.